In other words. 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 Welcome to In Other Words, the podcast from Revolving Doors Agency, made possible by the generous support of Lankelly Chase. I'm Marianne O'Hotter. The mission at Revolving Doors is to research and share evidence of effective ways to improve services for people stuck in the revolving door of crisis and crime. How? By working with national and local government, policymakers, commissioners, academic researchers, and people with lived experience. It's work that helps other organisations make life-changing differences. 2018 is Revolving Doors' 25th anniversary, so we're reinvigorating the conversation. We're gathering voices from across the sector to really get to the heart of the issues and questions we should all be asking. Revolving Doors may not agree with all the opinions that follow, but they're valuable contributions to the debate. We'd love to hear what you think, so join the discussion on Twitter using the hashtag InOtherWords and our handle at RevDoors. In this episode, we explore the link between trauma and the revolving door of crisis and crime. What is trauma? What impact does it have on people? Are there ways to protect or recover from it? And how does trauma shape the experiences people have within the system? Simply enough, a traumatic event could be anything that's distressing and threatens a person's ability to cope. A bereavement, getting caught up in a natural disaster or accident, or being the victim or witness of a violent incident. The two terms you're most likely to hear in this area, though, are complex trauma and adverse childhood experiences. So, what's complex trauma? This is exposure to multiple traumatic events. These events are often interpersonal, so involving relationships. Um, So things such as childhood abuse and neglect can be kind of complex trauma. Dr Nina Vaswani is the research lead at Scotland's Centre for Youth and Criminal Justice. Adverse childhood experiences, the, the way that we understand that at the moment is, is um, in kind of common discourse at the moment um, is that these are a group of around 10 childhood experiences that have been um, linked in research to a range of health harming behaviours um, and therefore a range of really um, negative health outcomes in adulthood. The 10 identified adverse childhood experiences or ACEs as they're known are physical, emotional or sexual abuse, physical or emotional neglect, and five ACEs associated with household dysfunction, living with a family member with mental illness, your parents separating, being exposed to domestic violence, drug or alcohol abuse in the home, and having a parent in custody. Half of people in England and Wales experience at least one ACE as a child. One in ten of us suffer four or more ACEs, which is statistically where lasting negative health outcomes start to become apparent, from poor mental health, increased abuse of alcohol or drugs, to a shorter life expectancy. Doctors say things are changing inside me. My brain isn't learning how to control my feelings properly. My body can't relax like those kids who don't have aces, so my body won't be able to repair itself properly when I get older, making it more likely I'll get cancer or heart disease as an adult. 
It hurts when my parents hit me, but the real damage is hidden, and that damage will be with me for life. That's a clip from a video created by Public Health Wales explaining the impact of ACEs. But if so many of us have experienced negative events in childhood, are we saying normal life is damaging? I don't think we would ever want to assume that these um, very difficult experiences um, are normal, even if lots of children are experiencing them. That doesn't mean that is the type of childhood that we know is is um, helpful and nourishing for, for children. Um, I think there's something quite important in reducing stigma, that actually to know that if you have been... Um, physically abused by a carer that actually you know this this is a, an experience that other people have also been through and it's not because of something you have done for example so I think that is is quite important um to understand when we know that there are actually um these common experiences but certainly they should never be seen as normal. In families identified as vulnerable or marginalized in some way the prevalence of ACEs is much greater. I um recently took uh undertook a research um, project with 130 young people who had been referred to our IV service, which is Interventions for Vulnerable Youth. So this is a service for um, under 18s who are um, at a very high risk of harm um, to themselves and to other people. So children who have displayed or at risk of quite serious violence or or harmful sexual behaviour, for example. Um, And we found that um, 59% of those children had experienced four or more adverse childhood uh, experiences. So you can see the difference there with that population and the general. Sometimes these coping skills aren't necessarily the most positive. So um, in my research, we found a lot of self-medication through substances, um, a lot of anger, a lot of aggression, um, a lot of risk-taking behaviour. Um, and I think when you start talking like that, you kind of begin to see how um, this leads children to, to rub up against authority, whether that's the head teacher in the school or whether that's um, the criminal justice system. So the, the, the responses to trauma, to loss, um, if they're not supported, can actually manifest as these behavioural, um, these behaviours are really an expression of their distress. Is it as simple as adding up the ACEs and coming out with a damage factor? And crucially, if you've experienced ACEs, are you inevitably on the road to ruin? Christina Marriott, CEO of Revolving Doors. So there's a lot of conversations at the moment about trauma in childhood, about adverse childhood experiences, and some of it is getting highly deterministic. So we're beginning to say, if this happens to you in childhood, you are more likely to have a heart attack in your 50s, you're more like, you're 11 times more likely to take substances, you are 11 times more likely to turn up in criminal justice systems. What we're failing to notice is that much as adverse childhood experiences do, for very many people impact on their lives they don't necessarily have to so we can build resilience in young people before an adverse childhood experience during it and after it and what we need to start doing is thinking about how we can build communities and societies and services that help build that resilience we cannot let poor experiences in childhood become a deterministic life sentence. What we need to do is develop the services that notice those poor experiences and then help the the child, the young person, the young adult or the adult overcome them through developing their own resilience. Children 
can and they do recover um, and they recover well, especially if they have the support of, of someone that they can rely on. So a safe, trusted adult. Um, some of the adverse childhood experiences research that's out now has looked at um, the presence of an always available adult. Um, so it doesn't have to be a family member. It could be a teacher. It could be a um, social worker. It could be a neighbour. It could just be somebody that that child knows that they can rely on, that is interested in them, that um, is there to support them. Um, and that's suggesting that the, these sort of negative outcomes that come from adverse childhood experiences can be reduced quite substantially um, if a child has this type of person in their, in their life. It's not a given, it's not a life sentence to have had these experiences in most children um, because they are they have resilience through um, the supports that they have or for the services they've uh, received go on to, to have um, you know, healthy adult lives. It's a balance then between predictive risk factors and resilience building protective factors. So should we be removing children from damaging situations before more damage is done? Edward Davis from the think tank Centre for Social Justice. Um, and so some of these, these, um, these problems, they are cyclical, they are generational, they do feed through. Uh, and so actually it, it becomes a really important thing, again, thinking about early years, that you intervene quite early in these cases so that you don't just see the same cycle happen again and again. And when you say intervene, is that a, an agent of the state or some kind of third sector service provider? W what's the vision for how that should look like, what that should look like? Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. I, the, um, the default does tend to be state intervention. Like, this is a problem, the state will solve it. As I was saying earlier, I think actually we need to move much more to a place of how can we support and enable those natural social structures to function better. So how do you enable a family, a new family, to operate better? And that's not necessarily a huge agent of the state, but it is those little nudges and those tweaks and those behavioural changes that maybe say, you may have grown up in a, father, in a fatherless household, but actually it can be a really good thing. Let's bring you in at an early stage and make you feel that this is a, an important part of the child's upbringing. So it doesn't have to be necessarily a huge, great looming hand of state, but an enabler that says to, to families at an early stage that actually this is a thing that you can do for yourselves this is probably just as important. I think there is, there's a real balance that needs to be had between individuals taking responsibility, but the responsibility that society needs to show to individuals. Um, I think it was JFK who said, our rights are only ever as great as our responsibilities. And so there is a real bind between the two there. I see family as the first safety net for most people, actually, uh, and likewise community. Uh, and there is a, a real danger, I think, in society that we just see sort of the state as the safety net. But actually, we have a responsibility to build strong families and strong communities to be the first safety net. And not just because it's sort of a Victorian ideal of family and community, but because actually when most people are in trouble, they go to their family first or they go to their community first because you want to see a, f a friendly face. Uh, and I think a lot of the problems we have, you know, you think of children in care. I mean, the state is a devastatingly bad family. So building strong families at the beginning is a really important part of that. Sat from Leicester is part of the Revolving Doors lived experience team. He's aware of how his childhood experiences impacted the behaviour and choices he and his friends made. I realise now that the way we conducted ourselves, you know, amongst each other, now I can see that we were masking trauma. I'm talking about friends who are masking the fact that their fathers have walked out on them and they're distraught 
but yet they couldn't sort of um, articulate it back then. But it came out, you know, as very competitive. Me and my group of friends, we were very competitive. We were not very supportive. Uh, and when you look back now and you see how everybody's living broken lives, uh, you realise that was not what they wanted. That, that was not what they were wanting. So why did they seem to have these defences? Why did they try to come out uh, and make out as if their lives were great when they weren't? The families were in shambles. Uh, so I realise now, masking those traumas, other kind of coping mechanisms, using comedy, diverting attention at the other guy who's got, uh, whose life is hard. Um, it's all come out now that... that, that the amount of trauma that was actually going on and, and like I say, we didn't deal with it in the right manner. Um, yeah, I think if, if, if we were a little bit more supportive, a little bit more understanding, had room to speak, um, we probably, you know, my friends may not still be 25 years on using heroin and crack cocaine, but hey, men can't show their feelings, can they? So that's, that's, I think that's, that's what we suffered with. Dr. Nina Vaswani again. I think when we recognise um, these behaviours, these expressions of distress as, as exactly that, as expressions of distress, then we can respond um, appropriately. So you know, struggling to concentrate in class, or feeling quite angry um, and um, they're you know, acting aggressively, then if that's seen as behaviour, it will have a behavioural response and, and that could quite frequently be punishment. If we see it as distress, you could technically respond to that in a kind of emotional well-being way and maybe support that, that young person better. So I think um, certainly not all behaviour is a, is a response to trauma, but a lot of it, particularly in these form of vulnerable children, is. And, and I do think you're right. I do think that that just gets punished a lot of the time. Is there a risk, though, that you say, OK, this is an expression of distress, trying to burn the school down or violently attacking someone? Um, and, and we're kind of using it as an excuse. We're, we're using this, this event that happened to you as a kind of an excuse for just bad behaviour and, and poor choices. Absolutely not. I don't think it's understanding where behaviour has come from is, is not excusing um, that behaviour. But I suppose when I've asked, been asked about this before, I think, well, what if a, if a harm has been committed, if a child has committed harm, if somebody has been harmed by that child's behaviour, um, what is it that people want? And people talk about justice, but, but what does justice mean? And um, I think when people are questioned, I think communities, I think people probably just want to make sure that this doesn't happen again it doesn't happen to them it doesn't happen to somebody else that their communities are safer um and actually if you want a safer community then actually you need to understand what has caused this behavior you need to stop this behavior happening again by addressing those those causes or supporting that child's recovery rather than necessarily punishing a child um and potentially you know making things worse so we know that custody doesn't have the best outcomes in relation to um, recidivism and rehabilitation so um, I think the question is what what kind of society what kind of community do we want and what is the best way to get that and yeah there, there will be occasions where people will need to go into custody or children will need to be removed from their families but um, as a rule I don't think that's an approach that is going to create the kind of community that I want to live in anyway. So whose responsibility is it to help these children? 
I think responsibility almost, it makes it sound like this is a difficult thing. It is absolutely in the individual's best interests to have secure family and secure communities. And I think the fact that we have undervalued these things is we're selling people a lie, frankly. I mean, a lot of our family, we, we work, we look at it, well, in fact, all of it, we look at it through a poverty lens. And if you are, you know, growing up in a one-parent household, you're seven times more likely to be in a workless household than in a two-parent household. Uh, and that's the evidence, and it's common sense as well. You can see why that would be the case. Um, and so there is a sort of, it's a self-interest to actually, to, to, to be responsible for your family and things. But equally, I do think the state plays a role in this. You know, sometimes things happen in life, and that's just reality, you know. Uh, and the state can help and it can empower families and it can empower communities and it's got a very serious role in that and not only again because it, it should but if you can tackle poverty and breakdown at the root causes and put it you know within a family context or a community context it's it's cheaper it's better it's you know people are more committed to their families and communities than some distant agent of the state that visits you from goodness knows where so it's 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 both the responsibility and the best interest thing David Wilson is Emeritus Professor of Criminology at Birmingham City University and was a prison governor for 14 years, until 1997. The kinds of people that were in my prisons, whether we're talking about young offender institutions or whether we're talking about maximum security prisons, were frankly the unloved and the unlovely. People who were swept under the metaphorical rug. Um, people who could not find any legitimate place in the community. They were problematic, troublesome. They were often not very nice, but often what one was dealing with was uh, were people who were struggling in various ways. People who were addicts or alcohol or drugs, people who were homeless, people who lacked educational skills, people who um, were unemployed. And then prison was expected to be able to overcome those deficits that they came in with. And of course, prison wasn't capable of doing that. You can't really tackle the kinds of multi-layered problems that the prison population had within an institution that is designed effectively to be carceral. Carceral in the sense that prison worked best about making sure that nobody escaped, keeping people locked up. It didn't work at all well when it was trying to educate or when it was trying to treat or when it was trying to rehabilitate. Prison really functions best simply as a place to suspend people as a punishment. And until that time is completed, till their punishment is over, then they could be released. But the idea that somehow prison could intervene in that person's life and make them better was, in my experience, impossible. England and Wales has the highest imprisonment rate in Western Europe. Around 83,000 people were in prison in June 2018, meaning the prison population has grown by more than 80% in the last 30 years. The majority of people sent to prison last year had committed a non-violent crime and almost half were sentenced to less than six months. For serious offences, tariffs are getting longer. More than three times as many people were sentenced to 10 years or more in 2017 than they were in 2007. According to the National Audit Office, there's no consistent link between levels of crime and the prison population. 
So amongst people in prison, how central is complex trauma? I think without doubt, the majority of the prisoners I've dealt with have had traumatic experiences and also also multiple layers of deprivation. I think it's no surprise that the average reading age of the sentenced male prison population is nine. You know, they're functionally illiterate. They've been school excluded. They've often been school excluded because they have undiagnosed issues related to dyslexia, for example, or they are uh, they are in chaotic um, life uh, situations. They um, they find it difficult to get out of bed because they're they're living rough. They're sleeping on sofas. They're sofa surfing. So a lot of the people that I worked with in prison have had traumatic experiences, but also themselves uh, can often come from backgrounds where they are routinely um, damaged by everyday experiences. For some prisoners, I think prison at best can help stabilize. Um, But for others, I think it re-traumatizes. Some prisoners would talk about the fact whilst they were in prison, at least they got a hot meal every single day. And when you realized that this institution was the one institution where they felt other people were looking after them, that felt really odd. That felt incredibly sad and depressing that an institution that was effectively carceral was providing this humane containment. For other prisoners, I felt it re-traumatized the problem that the prisoner had that had often led them into committing crime in the first place. Prison was very poor at dealing with mental health issues. Prison was often very poor at dealing with addictions. You know, you kind of think, oh, well, if they're in prison, that means they won't be getting access to drugs. Of course, we know that that's a joke, really. There are more drugs in prison than often there are in the community. It's easier to get access to drugs in jails, even our maximum security jails, and there is to get access to drugs in some neighborhoods. So prison often re-traumatized because you were putting people into a situation in which they, they, they simply did not know how to survive beyond uh, the kinds of subcultures that existed in the long-term prison population where you know the strong survived i mean i had one person describe to me for example how living on a particular wing of one prison i was in charge of was like gladiator school you know they literally had to fight every single day it's horrible Mm, of course it was horrible and uh, there was very little that one could do subculturally one recognized formally that there were rules and regulations and one and one imposed the rules and regulations but subculturally when prison officers were not around you realized that these men were often scrapping with each other or harming each other um, or abusing each other and that, that, you know, that, that, tr- 
trauma, therefore, that we're describing was also trauma that the staff had to acknowledge about themselves. Nobody, you know, it's a very odd occupation to be a prison officer or a prison governor. It's a very odd occupation to decide that you're going to lock people up as a career. And then when you realize that by engaging in that career, you might be harming people even further, that's the obscene real. The obscene real of the job was that you could be contributing towards a person being harmed, that's when you begin to think, you know, that this institution needs to change. In 2016 to 17, half of all prisoners in England and Wales said they felt unsafe at some point whilst in custody. 44,651 incidents of prisoners self-harming were reported in 2017, a new record high. There were 8,500 assaults on staff, a new record high, and 21,000 assaults by fellow prisoners on prisoners, a new record high. The number of frontline operational staff in the prison estate has been reduced by almost a quarter since 2010. Edward Davis from the Centre for Social Justice. There was a, um, a report about Nottingham Prison that came out last month and apparently one in six inmates there reported gaining an addiction when they went into prison, which is obviously absolutely absurd and you have probably double that number who are who are going in with an addiction which has driven the reason why they're in there in the first place uh, and fundamental safety about a third of the prisoners interviewed at nottingham said they didn't feel safe during the interview with the inspector and two-thirds said they generally didn't feel safe so you've got a problem there where you're trying to rehabilitate prisoners but fundamentally the prisons are not safe they are not places of hope and they are not places of rehabilitation and i think People don't tend to vote on how good the prisons are and people often don't vote about prisoners. But actually, I do think if you made it a priority to say, actually, this is a serious social justice issue, if you realised what was going on in our prisons right now, you would be ashamed of your country at times and to say, we, but we can do something about this. And I think it should, should be a priority for government. Most, you know, your average prisoner, repeat prisoner, probably has never had that opportunity where they've seen themselves apply themselves in, in you know, productively, legally, uh, uh, with the rest of society. So they've got nothing to build on. Sat again from the Revolving Doors lived experience team. He says he was able to use his time in prison to start getting his life back on track. And then he was released. So from probation, they had nothing. They, they you know, congratulate you for doing, applying yourself in prison but then having nowhere to refer you, nowhere to link your qualifications to, to any kind of meaningful uh, long-term activities. So, yeah, I mean, I came out with these 16 uh, uh, certificates, um, pride, uh, uh, just from how, you know, like I say, conducting yourselves with others, staff and prisoners. But, yeah, I came out and um, sort of uh, hit, you know, it was, it was, it was a heavy... A heavy landing, let's say. I think it, and I think it took about a year, just over a year of probation, going to see my probation officer once a month. Um, about a few months, three, four months before the end of my probationary period, I was handed, I was allocated a new worker because my uh, probation officer went uh, on maternity leave. Within the second conversation of with my new probation officer she managed to refer me somewhere uh, that I could actually make something of my training and my qualifications. That was peer mentoring. 
by the end of that year I got into university and with all years on now so that was like a big crucial uh, a massive crucial element in my sort of future there was that probation officer who I had first that one individual When it comes to experiencing and coping with trauma and the fallout, how are things different for men and women and boys and girls? Intriguingly, when it comes to ACE scores in childhood, those adverse events that are correlated with poor health and social outcomes in later life, it seems that girls aren't necessarily vulnerable in the ways we might expect. Studies have shown that boys tend to come into contact with the system at a lower level of adversity than girls. In one study, problematic drug use, for example, started to peak for boys at four or more aces. Girls, on average, scored eight or more aces before they turned to drugs in the same way. Dr Nina Vaswani. I don't know if that is a genuine difference in resilience um, between males and females. So there is research out there that suggests that females have bigger social support um, circles. They um, maybe have more developed emotional intelligence, so they maybe are they maybe um, can recognise when something is wrong more quickly um, and um, can maybe articulate that need more easily. Um, there's a whole load of research out there that I'm quite interested in about help-seeking behaviours and how all of those factors come together to. Um, reduce help seeking among males um, in that they don't have the social support or they don't um, aren't as able to articulate their need for help or they don't see the need for help um, as much as females do. So I think there's something there that females might be more resilient. Um, I I, I don't know for sure. It might just be that um, males and females express this distress differently um so there has been some evidence that females are maybe more likely to internalize um their distress where ma- males are more likely to act out their distress so externalizing behaviors so this is where maybe the anger the aggression the, the offending um might come in so whether there are these genuine differences in, in resilience or coping um or whether they're just different expressions i think i'm, I'm not really sure but either way i think you you can see how we might respond to that distress differently. Um, so we might respond to females more in a emotional well-being, mental health um, way, whereas we respond to males externalising behaviour with a behavioural response, which, as I said earlier, is, it can quite often be contact with authority, contact with the justice system or, or punishment. It's a hypothesis but it may go some way towards explaining why there are so many more men in the criminal justice system and perhaps why the women who are in prison tend to be some of the most vulnerable. Ex-prison governor, Professor David Wilson. I think sometimes we are too quick to judge young men who commit crime as perpetrators without looking more broadly at the circumstances that led them to commit crime in the first place. Also what one finds is that young men, because they think crime and committing crime is linked to their performance of masculinity, very rarely begin to talk about the real issues that are ongoing in their lives, and the harm that they've experienced, the lack of love that they've received, the lack of respect 
that they often have received. Whereas women, it seems to me, without without generalizing too much, are much better at being able to articulate those thoughts and feelings and emotions. I mean, the young men that I worked with were often brought up to be brutal because they themselves were brutalized. And until you start describing those things to those young men, they wouldn't actually have thought about it in those ways. They just simply accept the kind of pain that they've endured in their childhood as something that they just have to accommodate and get over. Um, whereas if you start talking to them about how that pain might have um, impacted on various decisions that they made, one of those decisions might be to have committed crime, um, they by and large don't really talk about those things. They're not encouraged to talk about those things because culturally we don't really allow boys to think in that way uh, in, in this culture. The thinking's corroborated by this anonymous member of the Revolving Doors lived experience team. I think a lot of them just think, well, you know, just got to go over it, um, which is a bit sad, really. Unless it's, I, think, I think a lot of the time people think it's kind of normal to be in situations like that or have a family like that. It's like, oh, yeah, my dad used to beat me or, you know, my mum left us when we were young and left me with a dad who's an alcoholic. That kind of, or, you know, both parents had mental health issues and then... The child ended up having to basically run the, the household. But I think a lot of people think it's normal. There needs to be so much work done around that um, and get men that help that they deserve. So if we can acknowledge the trauma someone has experienced and incorporate the idea that they might be both an offender and a victim, vulnerable and pose a risk, what are the implications for services and approaches so they're better fit for purpose and ultimately more successful? Rather than an organisation working primarily on sort of policies and procedures, it's a way of really helping thinking about the client, the, the person using the services, and how we can get better outcomes for them. Dr Amanda Skeet is a consultant clinical psychologist working with the NHS and homelessness charity St Basil's. She's the lead for the Psychologically Informed Environments, or PI, programme. The aim with PI is to create a compassionate and thoughtful service culture in a physical space that's non-institutional, safe and welcoming, with staff who are aware of how clients' past experiences might influence their current behaviour and thinking. In services where we know people are, are sort of struggling, they're needing additional support and help, where their responses seem to be confusing or counterproductive or self-sabotaging, what we're often looking at is people who've um, experienced complex trauma. Um, and um, one of the things that, as you say, with the revolving door situation is that person becomes more and more excluded less and less organisations are willing to support that individual. So we know that sort of as risk information gets um, sort of recorded and passed on, their access to support and services decreases. And that information, whilst it's really important, because we've got to remember we need to keep staff safe and other residents safe um, in a housing context, Actually, for that person, their options become more and more marginalised and they become more and more disconnected from their community, from society. 
it's about understanding the human brain. So when we're under pressure, when we're under stress, our brain functions slightly differently and we're more likely to be less psychologically informed. So, for example, um, you, you see when staff are under pressure and they don't have their pie training, that's when they're more likely to say, well, the policy says you can't use this space or you can't do this, more likely to be negative in, in their um, interactions with young people. The other thing that we have to recognise is a significant portion of our young people have had very difficult life experiences, have um, had what we describe as complex trauma or lots and lots of adverse childhood experiences. And that then impacts on the way our young people might behave. So they might behave in ways that are challenging or confusing. So, for example, saying one day, help me, help me, help me. And then the next day, not turning up for an appointment where the support workers made time to help that person. So because of all this, that's why we need to go, we call it just beyond the scope of common sense um, and help the staff understand that um, a young person might need help but might present in ways that feel um, counterproductive or self-sabotaging. In our normal um, sort of day-to-day, -day, when we want somebody to do something, we tend to just tell them, you know, so um, can you pick that up? Can you do that? Can you do that task? Actually, when we're trying to build motivation in somebody who might be feeling helpless and hopeless, um, or lacking in motivation because they're experiencing a sort of depressed mood, we have to build motivation in a very different way. So we have to help that person build their internal motivation. And to do that, um, we actually have to steer clear of telling somebody what to do or trying to sort of persuade them or urge them or nag them. And we have to help them explore their motivation we might have to actually focus much more on building their belief in themselves and empowering them rather than just giving them a guideline. Do you think most staff in most organisations would welcome that opportunity? or Would they feel like they're doing all the legwork to excuse people behaving badly? Um, I think that's a really good question. I think I always keep in my mind that nobody comes to work to do a bad job. So for the majority of staff, they want to help people. They've chosen to come into a career where they're supporting and working with somebody who has some need. However, day in, day out of perhaps experiencing sort of distress or challenging and antisocial behaviour, any human being will become worn down. So part of what PI is there to provide it's as well as training and tools so staff feel confident and competent to work with people who might demonstrate sort of complexity in their behaviour. PI is also about supporting staff. So um, as well as training, we deliver regular reflective practice sessions. And some of those sessions are devoted to helping staff man manage their well-being, their mental health as well. So it's really sort of... Um, helping the whole system be more mentally sort of well, if you like, rather than it all being front-focused on the service user. The statutory system operates on, on sanctions rather than motivation and rewards and, and personal development. You know, you don't do the right thing, you get your benefits cut. If you don't follow the instructions from probation, you end up back in prison. I mean, how do those two things square with my NHS hat on, sometimes 
I, I struggle with the way that services are delivered. I think as time goes on and we, it, it's on services that are becoming PI or are a PI organisation in thinking about um, evaluation, getting outcomes and research, because I think what we need to do is get the evidence that this approach isn't some woolly um, sort of, oh, it's very nice if, if you can do it type approach, but actually it has an impact on um, the well-being of staff, that it reduces things like um, staff sickness, um, staff turnover, and that ultimately it delivers better outcomes for service users. So one of the things that um, St. Basil's are working with the University of Birmingham, and they're looking at some of the... Um, financial data in terms of actually how much does it um, save the state that we are working in a psychologically informed way. So if we're reducing um, young people's use of mental health services, um, A&E departments, ambulance use, use of the criminal justice system, which is what we're finding, how much actual impact is that fiscally? And I think that's the only way we're going to start getting culture change in, in sort of statutory services is to prove it works. You've been listening to In Other Words, the podcast from Revolving Doors Agency. Check out the website for the other episodes in this series and please join our discussion online, on Twitter and in person. Together we can improve the system and end the revolving door of crisis and crime. In the next episode, we ask the big question. What does it all mean for what we should be doing? Services, academics, communities, commissioning and policy. Can we push things in the right direction? Or is it time for a revolution? <laughs>